Hello! Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of A Flatpack History of Sweden, Swedish Vikings in the East. We're picking up where we left off last week, so we talked about the amazing adventures of a certain French bishop called Anskar. My gosh, did he get up to a lot in his life. And we learned a lot about Viking kingship in Sweden during this time, and what life was like in general in Viking towns, and in Birka in particular. And this adds to the information about rural Viking life from episode 11, so we've got a bit of flesh onto the bones of the Viking Age now. Absolutely, and the period which Ansgar was alive for is something we'll return to in more detail this week, and we even return to talk more about that king of the Franks, Louis the Pious, so... We'll actually be heading back to the West for a lot of the detail in this episode, despite the title focusing on what the Swedes did when they went East. We'll be in all directions this week. Every direction on the compass will be covered. But more on that in a bit, because we've got our Swedish phrase to talk about, which this time is med endores envishet. Yeah, so that translates to English as with the stubbornness of a fool. And it's often used to comment on someone who persistently pursues a thankless or impossible task. So someone does something with the stubbornness of a fool. I don't know, I was trying to think of an example and came up with that you could say... I tried to make my friend see that buying a horse was a bad idea, but she just loves horses so much and now she has enough money to buy one. So I can be as stubborn as a fool trying to convince her not to, but she's just going to go ahead and get the horse anyway. Is this a particular friend who you know who likes horses? Maybe. Yes. Maybe. And if that particular friend is listening, she can message me. I don't think she does. No. Anyway, so should we talk about the Swedes in the East then? Yeah, and from now on, we are going to introduce a new term, a new name, and that name is the Rus. We've mentioned them before briefly, but now we're going to find out more about who they were. As ever, this isn't going to be entirely about Swedes, because it still is difficult to define where the different Vikings came from sometimes, but there are definitely some general themes to this that we can look at. When we look at Viking expansion east of Sweden, uh, Denmark was particularly interested in the general area around Prussia and modern-day Poland, so remember the Danes with King Arnund last time? They went to somewhere in Poland after they abandoned their attack on Birka, so... That's where the Danes were focused, sort of northern shore of the Baltic Sea there. There are lots of Viking finds in the Latvian and Kaliningrad area as an example of this. And they also did a bit of investigating of the southern region of the modern Baltic states. Yes, lovely investigating with their swords and longboats. <laughs> in, yeah, violent investigations. Yes. But in contrast, the Swedes were the ones who were really concentrating on the eastern routes, with the Baltic just being sort of the place they had to go through on the way. 
over the time, over sort of like the centuries, really, the Swedes did siege a lot of these hill forts and mini towns that had begun to spring up in Tallinn in Estonia and over the water in Finland. But they weren't ever really tempted to create any permanent Scandinavian or Swedish supremacy in the area. The inland areas always remained controlled by the native Finnish or Estonian and Baltic peoples. The Swedes really came to their own when they reached modern-day Russia and Ukraine, though, even reaching the area around Romania and Bulgaria too, but not really colonising those places. Slightly further south of this area, they found great contacts with the Byzantine Empire, or the continuation of the Roman Empire. In the middle of the 800s, the Byzantine Empire was struggling to hold onto the heel and the toes of Italy in a small sliver of Sicily, and their major territories were that of modern-day Greece and Turkey, and they also had a bit of Crimea around Sevastopol. So these were the sort of areas where the Swedish Vikings were bumping into them. And their main rivals in turn to the east at this point were the Abbasid Caliphate. This was the third Islamic Caliphate to be founded, and it's named after its founder, Abbas Ibn Abdul Muttalib. The dynasty of Abbas ruled as caliphs for most of the time from their capital Baghdad, after they had overthrown the previous Umayyad Caliphate in 750. So at the point the Swedes start arriving in any great number, the Caliphate are very well established and control all of modern-day Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Arabian Peninsula, the northern coast of Africa from Egypt to Algeria, plus all of Syria, all the way up to Armenia. In fact, in the middle of the 850s, uh, that was when the Abbasid Caliphate was at its peak. Yeah, and these two superpowers have gone backwards and forwards over the decades and will continue to do so in one form or another for centuries to come. It's in this context that the Swedes start expanding eastwards and forming settlements or taking over the running of existing towns. We've mentioned the trading town Straya Ladoga previously as it's a great example of this. So Ladoga was like a mini Swedish Birka, just east of where St. Petersburg is today. This town was founded in the 8th century, starting off early, before the time of Ansgar, for example, and dendrochronology, which is the scientific method of dating tree rings. So using that method, it's suggested that it was founded around 750 or 753, to be more exact. But it was during the 830s and 840s when this site expanded massively. Exactly, and until a few years ago when this dendrochronology actually came in, a lot of the archaeologists previously thought that Lodoga was founded in the 850s and such because they didn't really spot this elder state to it. Yeah, so that's quite an interesting place to look at because... It's in this time in the 830s and 840s that we're talking about now that a lot of new houses were built in Ladoga, some of them in the Scandinavian style that the Vikings were familiar with. Until 950, so for about a century or so, it was one of the most important trading ports of Eastern Europe. It linked in with Birka as merchants sailed from 
Sweden and Denmark, through the Baltic Sea, and over to Ladoga. From there, the traders and raiders could have continued on to the other big town of this time, Novogrod, and down all the way to Constantinople or through to the Caspian Sea. Yeah, this route is known as the trade route from the Varangians to the Greeks. An alternative trade route led down the Volga River and eventually to the southern shores of the Caspian Sea, all the way to Baghdad. And as a sign of this great expanse of trade, the oldest Arab coins from the Middle Ages found in Europe was unearthed in Ladoga. So the town remained a key place throughout much of history. The Hamus Kringler, one of those blockbuster sagas, along with other Nordic sources, mentioned that in the late 990s, a chap called Erik Håkonsson came from Norway and raided the coast around Ladoga and set the town on fire. Oh dear. By a very violent... This wasn't the only dramatic event in Ladoga's long life, though it continued as a trading town in the 12th and 13th century when they built huge fortresses around it, maybe to protect them from Norwegians uh, coming <laughs> around and setting it on fire. It was rebuilt 400 years later, but sadly, almost completely destroyed during the Second World War. After so much violence, that's eventually what got to it. But it's been reconstructed recently, so if you're in the area, you can check it out. As I said, it's outside St. Petersburg in northwest Russia. Yeah, so if you want to see an old fortress that's been rebuilt after being destroyed many times, that's a place to go. And it can be seen that Ladoga was perhaps the most important trading centre in northeastern Europe in the 9th century, if you forget about Constantinople itself. This is right when we're talking about for this episode. Some research has even suggested that between 90 to 95% of all of these Arab dirhams, or which are Arab coins, found in Sweden had passed through Ladoga at some point on their journey. So this shows you it was really ideally placed for tapping into that trade from the two superpowers of the East at the time. We'll speak more next week about the political developments that took place in Ladoga and the Vikings who were living there as we tackle an important person called Rurik, but we won't mention him more today. This is just something to think about. Keep a pin in the name Rurik because he'll come up again. Now, another two towns that are important in this time period are Novogrod and Kiev. Kiev, perhaps, we're, we're still familiar with, as it remains the capital of Ukraine. We will talk again more about this next time, but Novogrod is founded by the Rus in the 860s, with Kiev becoming more important towards the end of that century. Alright, so we've talked about these places being founded and inhabited by the Rus, we've said the word Rus, but who were they? So it seems early on that the Rus was a name of people who were Swedish in origin who ended up living in this area of Russia and Ukraine. There seems to be a difference of opinion about whether or not it was the entire group of people who lived there that got this name, or if it was just political leaders or the traders and raiders who happened to be of a Swedish origin who were entitled to be called this name. 
Perhaps think of it a bit like the fact that the word Viking technically meant it was just the people who were going on these military expeditions at sea and not people like Herogar who were staying behind and organizing places like Birka. So it's maybe just the Swedish elite who were in these places, but a bit later on it's perhaps becoming a term for everyone living there. Exactly. And in the instance where the Swedes went into these areas and just took over the running of small towns, as they did, the original inhabitants were perhaps not called Rus if they went to places further afield themselves. A lot of the first people who were called Rus by foreign sources were probably new arrivals from the Baltic area and Sweden and had not been living in this area of that's modern-day Russia for very long or might even just be passing through. Yeah, so if a Swede went all the way down to Constantinople and never stopped on his way, he could conceivably be called a Rus as well as the people who lived in Ladoga for their whole life. So it's very flexible, but it's sort of the general themes that we're, we're talking about. But regardless, after a while, as we touched on, the entire peoples from these areas did start to be identified as Rus after this episode sort of finishes, effectively. The stuff that we're talking about next week sees the creation of actual political entities as the Rus as we move on for the next decades and centuries. And we'll see this next week about how the Swedes helped set up some of these places in Kiev and Novograd. But just like we mentioned a few weeks ago, there comes a point where these people aren't Swedes anymore. They become the people of their new home, so they become the Rus. And this isn't a history of the Rus podcast, same as it isn't like we joked about a history of Minnesota or Northern America. It's the Swedes. So this is sort of going to be an introductory episode to talk about generally what these people were doing. And we'll go into a lot more detail about the politics behind it next week. But then we might leave it at arm's length for a bit. Yeah, because by the time we get into the political developments in the next episode, like Chris is saying, the main figures are no longer Swedish in any political or societal sense. They, The growing petty kings back home in Sweden, like Björn, had no sway over people like, like Rurik living in these areas of the Rus, Sweden didn't control what they were doing, just like when million Swedes emigrated to America. That didn't mean that Sweden had any control over Minnesota, just because a large part of the state in its early days were settled by Swedes. So it's connected, but it also quickly becomes its own entity. Yeah, it's very different to the Swedish Empire in the 1600s and the 1500s and the 1700s, which did control areas like Latvia and Lithuania. But we'll get back to that in a, probably a couple of hundred episodes time. Oh, I can't wait for that, though. Oh, such a cool time in history. So... If we can say what the Rus were in generally huge brushstrokes, Swedish or Scandinavian immigrants and travellers in the Russian and Ukrainian lands, and eventually a people in their own right, how did we even get to know so much about them in the first place when they're not exactly famous for writing their own histories and giving long accounts of themselves? No, but luckily we do have a lot of written evidence about the Rus, 
just like with Ansgar and Birka, the earliest written mention of the word Rus, spelt R-U-S, appears in one of the main sources from this time, the Primary Chronicle, which was a history of the group of Rus who ruled Kiev from the 850s until the 12th century. This reference to the Rus came in 912, when the chronicle describes a peace treaty signed by the Viking Oleg of Novogrod, solid name, by the way, after his campaign against the Romans in Constantinople. But even before this, we see the word Rus, but spelt R-H-O-S, come up in a number of sources, which appears to be a direct link between both the Rus and Sweden in particular. This comes from a diplomatic mission with the Byzantines in the late 830s, and it is from this that we see the connection to Sweden being explicitly stated. Exactly, and this is what we're going to look into in a lot more detail shortly. But before we do that, it's important to mention that we get a great deal of our information from Arabic sources. And all of these names have loads of different variations. So also said the Rus spelled R-U-S, but also R-H-O-S. And the, of the Arabic sources uh, name them things like Rusia, which uh, for some listeners that will bring back hints of what the Russians call Russia today. And there's lots of this massive conflicting history about this being the origins of Russia and stuff, which is unbelievably complicated and gets really in detail about the um, sort of like the etymology behind these words so we'll definitely leave that to a few of the Russian history podcasts that are definitely out there. So this Rusia term was used by the Persian traveller Ahmad ibn Rusta and he even visited key towns like Novogrod in the 10th century and he wrote this about what he saw. As for the Rus... They live on an island that takes three days to walk round and is covered with thick undergrowth and forests. It is most unhealthy. They harry the Slavs, using ships to reach them. They carry them off as slaves and sell them. They have no fields, but simply live on what they get from the Slavs' land. When a son is born, the father will go up to the newborn baby, sword in hand, throwing it down. He says, I shall not leave you with any property. You have only what you can provide with this weapon. Wow, that sounds like a Viking to me. So, um... <laughs> sounds like a place I'm not as entirely sure i'd like to visit no but it shows you that the swedes or the Rus are living in these small communities they are settled there but they're not sort of living there in the ter in the sense of having farms and things like that they are seem to be like a camp of raiders it seems like Ahmad ibn Fadlan is another big source at this time, and he saw a lot of the Rus on his trip to meet bulgarian tribes as part of an embassy of the abbasid caliph of baghdad his trip took him to meet the tribes which were known as the Bolgars, and he even witnessed a ship burial of the Rus in the Volga area. So to get there, his embassy travelled a lot on the Volga River and saw loads of groups of these Rus, who by this time had really perfected their merchant-style lifestyle of going and trading with all these Arabic and Byzantine traders. One shortened quote of his is, 
I have seen the Rus as they came on their merchant journeys and encamped by the Ittal. I have never seen more perfect physical specimens. Tall as date palms, blonde and ruddy, they wear neither tunics nor caftans, but the men wear a garment which covers one side of the body and leaves a hand free. Each man has an axe, a sword, and a knife, and keeps each by him at all times. The women wear neck rings of gold and silver. Their most prized ornaments are green glass beads. They string them as necklaces for their women. Wow, that, that sounds like the description of a Swedish Viking to me, especially the blonde and tall part. What we're still known as is what we were known as then. That's, that's quite cool. Yeah, and this is actually kind of helpful because the life of Ansgar doesn't really go into any detail about their appearance. So this is just adding to that rich picture that we have of them at the time. So Ibn Krabaye, the director of posts and intelligence of the Abbasid Caliphate, that is a cool title, by the way. That is a job I want. Yeah, I want to be director of posts and intelligence. Of the Abbasid Caliphate. Well, yeah, I could do without the time machine, but um, yeah. Uh, Ibn Krabaye, he mentions that northern traders called Rus brought swords and furs south to the Byzantines, paying local customs duties as they went. Well, that's also, I feel, very Swedish, you know, doing... Pay your taxes. Pay your taxes, have your paperwork in order. He says that these Rus were already known by the Byzantines as the Rus, uh, spelt R-H-O-S, from their earlier contacts with them, which we'll get to now. If you want more detail about this sort of trade, there is a lot of information in a great article by Marianne Wedler, and it's called Silk Trade to Scandinavia in the Viking Age. It looks a lot into this trade with caliphates and the Byzantines of the time, so if you just Google that, you'll find her article. Yes. There would have been plenty of opportunity for these embassies to see this trading in action, as they wouldn't have even had to have left their hometown. They would have just seen it happening organically around them. And in the east, especially after the 860s, when the Rus had full control of the Kiev region, they began trafficking goods down the Dnieper region along rivers small and large. They even used the same versatile boats to take them across the Black Sea to Constantinople. So I remember we talked about how they used to be able to pick the boats up and carry them across land for a bit to go to another river because they were quite easy to handle. They made trade agreements with the Byzantines to get favourable access to Constantinople's trading markets. It was there where they were able to get goods from both the Caliphate and the Byzantines and feed it back into their own trade network, enabling items such as those Arabic coins to travel all the way back to places like Birka. But now that's sort of a bit of the background covered, it's time to look more deeply into this evidence about these guys being Swedish rather than anyone else. Yeah, so as mentioned, in the 830s, that's when the Rus really enter the scene, or enter the written records at least, and we should say that they were initially referred to as R-H-O-S, so maybe it should be pronounced Ross rather than Rus, but uh, it's eventually the spelling changes and it, it refers to the same people. 
A lot of the scholarship on the foundation of the Rus and the origins of Swedes going east at this point, it comes from a famous encounter in 839, which is actually going back west, even though it's about going east. Yeah, confusing (laughs) enough, but we actually get to reintroduce one of our characters from last week, so that's good. I hope everybody remembers that Louis the Pious, the king of the Franks. I certainly do, but just in case, and because we only really mentioned him in passing last time, let's give a proper introduction to Louis the Pious. Yes, so Louis the Pious was born in 778 in what's now Western France, and he was actually a twin, but his brother died as a small child, so that's not very nice of him, losing your brother. But he was the son of that legendary Charlemagne, who had expanded the Frankish state into what's now called the Carolingian Empire. Their capital city was in Aachen, which is now on the very, very west of Germany, right by the border. This was where Charlemagne died in 814, leaving Louis, by this point his only surviving son, as Emperor of the Carolingian Empire and King of the Franks. I think it's just easier calling him King of the Franks, so we'll just do that. He is a very important chap, and he has been Emperor or King for 25 years by this time that the Swedish story occurs in 839. Although, remember, Ansgar had been to and returned to Sweden on his first trip at this point, so Louis was well aware of who the Swedes were, and he was interested in foreign relations, both those involved in war and those of peace and religion. Louis nearing the end of his life at this point, actually. Um, He might not have known it himself, uh, because we don't know when we're going to die, but we do, and we know that he's only got a year to live at this point, and he's actually pretty worried about the state of his kingdom and empire because in 833 and 834 there was a series of revolts and he was actually deposed for a while and had to do this humiliating display of public penance to get the nobles and family members to trust him again. This is all a result of a political wrangling and was the end of a second civil war that he'd faced. So despite this civil war coming to an end, The general instability had continued, and it was this context that he's dealing with everything when we get to 839. It's not helped by the fact that just two years before, in 837, there was a massive raid from Danish Vikings on his territory. And indeed, just as we're talking about this period in 839, his third civil war has broken out only a few weeks or months before the incident that we're talking about. So he's he's had to deal with a lot of problems. Indeed, it is quite complicated. We get a lot of information recorded in the Annals of St. Burton, which is a long account written by various authors throughout this period, but at this time it's written by a man called Prudentius of Troyes. And like the life of Ansgar, this was written by a man who was present at a lot of the events of the time. Prudentius was part of Louis' court, was present during the encounter we're about to talk about, and had access to Louis' library afterwards, and so had copies of the various letters which are mentioned in the event and so on. We get interested in Louis because of this event, which occurred on the 18th of May in 839, just two days before his third civil war was going to be ended with a peace treaty. And again, we have an exact date, the 18th of May. That is so exciting. We're getting into various of tangible history now. 
Yeah, exactly. And on this day, on the 18th of May, it doesn't say what the weather was like, but we can just, maybe it's cloudy. Um, we can say that Louis received some foreign visitors at his palace at Ingelheim. Prudentius says that Louis's visitors were some Byzantine envoys sent by the Eastern Roman Emperor Theophilus to reaffirm the friendship between Europe's two main powers at this point. Should probably give a very, very short background on Theophilus for some context because it all relates into this Frank, Byzantine, and Swedish situation which is happening. So, Theophilus became emperor when he was around 25 years old in around 800, but it could be 805. It's one of these very confusing lives and sources at this point, but he was around during a time of loads of Byzantine wars against the caliphate. As a younger man, he carried holy relics around walls of the city to help motivate the defenders, as the Byzantines liked to do. He spent his time as emperor, both fighting against the caliphate, but also working on loads of public works. He built a new bronze elaborate door on the Hagia Sophia, the main cathedral in Constantinople. And he even had this elaborate moving statue of a lion in his throne room. And in 837, so at the same time that Louis was being attacked by the Vikings, Theophilus personally led a huge army against the caliphate and made his way all the way into Mesopotamia, right into the heartland of the caliphate for this huge successful raid. But just a year later, the caliphate swore revenge and attacked back. Theophilus himself led troops in this devastating battle the Battle of Anzin, where a large Byzantine army that actually outnumbered the caliphate was almost completely destroyed, and Theophilus himself only just about managed to escape with his life. And like for any Byzantine emperor in this period, if you want to know more information, just listen to Totalus Rankium. Theophilus's episode is nearly two hours long, so there's so much information about all of this stuff going on in the East, so it's there for you to listen to. Excellent podcast in general, Totalus Rankium. Yes. So Theophilus was in the middle of this huge war at this time, and he was obviously interested in getting as much help as he could find. So this is the context for his embassy to Louis. It was about their general relationship as two empires in Europe and probably even trying to get some sort of assistance from Louis in attacking the caliphate because the caliphate had areas like Sicily that Louis was also interested in. So it's a bit of a, oh, can you help me? These caliphate guys are really destroying my empire and I could use with some help. But at the same time as all of that was going on, Theophilus had also sent, along with his envoys, some strange men who called themselves Rus, which Louis had not encountered before and not heard of. So there we have it, the Rus, or Ross, spelled R-H-O-S, in written sources. Indeed, this is their first appearance in literature under that name. But where does it go from here? So the Rus are with this Byzantine embassy, which has gone to go and see Louis. And Theophilus had given his embassy a letter to give to Louis. And in this letter, he asked Louis for the Rus to be given safe passage through Frankish lands in order for them to get home safely. He asked Louis to provide them with assistance to get there because they wanted to get back home. But supposedly, the way back home from Constantinople was impossible due to dangers barring their way. The Rus had been in Constantinople negotiating trade and peace with Theophilus, so that's why he's interested in them getting home safely. 
So he just sent them with his embassy going west to the Franks because, oh, well, that's sort of on the general direction and maybe we can get Louis to help them. So this is where it gets really interesting because Prudentius mentions that Louis was suspicious of these new people and investigated the matters more closely and it was then discovered that these ruse were in fact what the Franks called Swedes. Ooh, drama. And it explicitly mentions this in the source. It says they are the Swedish people. Yeah, it's drama for sure. The Annals of St. Burton, next, they say this. He suspected that they had really been sent as spies to this kingdom of ours rather than as seekers of friendship, so decided to keep them with him until he could find out for certain whether or not they had come in good faith. So Louis is trying to interrogate or question the Rus or the Swedes, as he isn't really sure if the story about them returning home quite adds up. Yeah, because this whole going home via France, Germany, Switzerland sort of area does sound a bit bogus because Louis would have known himself that the easiest way for people getting from Constantinople up to Sweden would have been the way that the Swedes would have got there in the first place, which is going via the rivers of Ukraine and Russia and that sort of way, and certainly would have been quicker than them walking across Europe. So Louis now knows exactly who these visitors are and that they're Swedes. And as we said, this is only a decade after that Ansgar's returned from Sweden and is still organising all of these trips to Sweden. And he would have told Louis exactly what he saw there and the general situation of Sweden. Louis is obviously interested himself in getting as much information as he can on the neighbours to his empire because he doesn't want these people just to be randomly appearing out of nowhere. So it's safe to say that he would have known that the Swedes could have got back an easier route if they tried. Yeah, so Louis is perhaps right to be suspicious of these potentially spying Rus Swedes. And the sources don't mention any direct attacks on the Franks at this time from Swedes, but... This is a period when the Swedes were raiding other people in the east and the Danes were attacking Louis frequently. And if we cast back to last week, there was the case of Arnund, the exiled Swedish king who was living in Denmark at the time. So for Louis, people who came from that sort of general area were not perhaps his biggest friends. And it isn't a great stretch to imagine that a warrior king like Arnund would have chipped in and helped the Danes with their raids during his exile. I mean, after all, he managed to get 21 longboats to follow him back to Birka, so he must have been of some help to the Danes. So if Louis suspected these ruse were allies with, or at least sympathetic to Arnund or the Danes and like we said they came from that general area that would certainly be a reason for him to worry about them and maybe be less keen to help them return home. Yeah indeed and we know from the annals of Burton that Louis is so worried about these roosts that he writes a letter back to Theophilus warning him that he thinks they're spies and that they probably spied on Constantinople when they were visiting Theophilus himself. So Louis gives this letter to the Byzantine envoys and tells them to take it back to Theophilus. 
He adds that he did help the Swedes initially for the sake of the mutual relationship between the two emperors, but if he found out in the future that the Swedes were generally trying to go home, he would do so and help them out of his respect for Theophilus. However, if the Swedes turned out to be spies, he'd send them back to Constantinople with some of his own envoys for Theophilus to do what he wanted with them, which would probably be a bit something gruesome, I guess. Unfortunately, we don't hear of the fate of the Swedes, so we just have to speculate on what became of them. But the fact that the Annals of Bertin doesn't mention a, you know, a gory execution of these spies or anything, we can maybe assume that he did eventually let them go, but something to think about. It's, I hope so. It, it seemed with this post going back and forwards and stuff, it seemed like either way, they must have been then staying in Ingelheim or around Louis the Pious for a long time. Yeah, at least a couple of weeks, yeah. you imagine. Like a lot of these longer stories and records, there's a lot to unpack here. So firstly, why were the Rus in Constantinople to begin with? Now, the letters say that they were in Constantinople to be friendly with the Byzantine, to promote trade and maybe agree some sort of peace treaty after the Rus had been raiding nearby. And the Byzantine needed help and competent allies, as the Caliphate were, as we saw, beating them pretty hard. And the Rus, in turn, they needed trade access to Constantinople because it's the biggest trading place around. Yeah, that, and that, that's definitely legitimate reason for the Rus to be wanting to speak to the Byzantines and to speak to Theophilus. And this, of course, doesn't preclude any spying whilst they're there, but it would have been pretty difficult for the Rus to miss the huge Theodosian walls of Constantinople that have been built. There are sort of like five or six layers to them. Like, it's impossible to miss this. So there wasn't, maybe not they've even needed to do any sort of active spying. Just going there themselves would have made, let them see like, oh, wow, we'll never, ever destroy this place it's huge so what i find most interesting is that louis had heard of the swedes obviously but he'd never heard of the Rus, or that the swedes could be called the Rus. after investigating further he worked out that they were what he would call the swedes so these Rus in the story could perhaps have just been swedes on one giant world tour just heading home or they could have been some of these swedes who were living in ladoga sort of permanently We'll never know the answer, but it shows you that what the Byzantines called their local Swedes in the East were the exact same people that Louis associated as the guys living in Birka. Yeah, and the fact that the Rus of the Russia-Ukraine area are known as Rus to other people in the East, but are quickly identified as Swedes in the West, it shows you this great interchanging nature of the two terms at this point. Uh, there wasn't a big difference between the two terms, it seems, but this will change as we progress just a few decades, and although there was clear evidence that they were originally Swedes, and they continue to be identified as such until at least after the 830s, over time they develop their own identity as Rus. Yeah, like the Rus of Kiev. Yeah. So, but now we get to the burning question is why exactly were the Rus travelling with the envoys to begin with? 
a scholar called Vladislav Duchko, in his book, Viking Ruth's Studies on the Presence of Scandinavians in Eastern Europe, thinks that the best explanation is that Theophilus had asked these Swedes to go to ask the Danes for help on his behalf, either to establish first contact or even put out a few feelers about a military alliance. It's tempting to see that the Byzantine Empire would have wanted the Danish help. They would have heard all about the Danes' military prowesses, both from Louis himself lamenting that he'd been attacked or just from general sources in the time and he could have thought perhaps that they would have been a reliable source of manpower against the caliphate or even just you know some friendly advice or distractions yeah this does seem possible i mean the vikings of the time do seem to appreciate fellow vikings either vouching for them or initiating contact on their behalf like Remember when Ansgar travelled, he travelled with a Danish messenger and with messages from the Danish king to convince the Swedes not to turn him away on his second trip. But this is a bit of a similar fashion here, but the other way around. Yeah, so it's it's definitely, you can see why um, Swedish people going to speak to Danes on someone else's behalf is going to be much more acceptable than just some random Byzantine people turning up in Denmark who'd never been there before. It makes sense that some Swedes would try first. Yeah, I mean, the only question this does raise is why the envoys didn't just tell Louis this. Mr. Dusko proposes that this was because... The Byzantines were negotiating with Louis too, and Louis might not have reacted well if he found out that his Byzantine allies were working with the same Danes who had attacked the Franks so brutally just two years before, in 837. I mean, this certainly seems possible, and you can tell that the Franks and the Byzantine had a decent relationship at this point, because... Louis warns Theophilus when he thinks that the Swedes are potentially spies. It it makes sense that Theophilus wouldn't want to ruin that relationship. Yeah, and either way, as we said, sadly, we don't know what happens to these Swedes. Uh, But the reactions between the two empires talking about these Swedes has given us something to help identify the Rus and their beginnings. But the same historian has uh, identified further evidence for the Swedes' actually going to Denmark because there are three Byzantine imperial seals that have been found in Denmark that's the sort of the stamp rather than a a seal animal Um, but these these seals have been found in Denmark and some of Theophilus's coins have been found in Birka so that could definitely just be coincidence that imperial Byzantine seals have been found in Denmark from the same sort of time period as Theophilus's coins being found in Birka, because we know that the Swedes traded with the Byzantines and they could have just been coins that they got any other way. That is uh, sort of like a romantic tinge to history in that sense that like you, you want that to be true. Um, we have to obviously look at it a little bit more objectively than that, but it does seem to make sense if you add up these pieces. So maybe that is true. And they, they did get let off and they went to Denmark. Sadly, we don't have 
any evidence that the Danes took up Theophilus's supposed offer of help because there's no mention in the sources of sort of victorious Danish Vikings turning up and helping out Theophilus against the caliphate. But um, Maybe be... they just couldn't be bothered. Yeah, well, that's perfectly legitimate. Why go all the way over there? We can yeah, attack the Franks you know. who are next door. Yeah, and you know, it was summer in Denmark. It's lovely. You don't want to leave. You're having a good time. You can't be bothered. Reading about this and, and talking about it now has made me think how much more difficult professional networking was before LinkedIn. Because, <laughs> okay. I mean, what they're doing here, the Byzantine, the Franks, the Rus, the Swedes, the Danes, it's a violent form of professional networking. And before you could do it all on LinkedIn and various sort of professional and trade networking group, you had to haul your butt backwards and forwards across Europe and uh, the Middle East and the Arabic Peninsula, you know, it was a lot, a lot more of a physical effort back then to, to network, really, less mingling and eating cucumber sandwiches and more walking across Europe. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And one one of the stories that Totalis Rankium highlight in their episode about Theophilus is when he was talking to the leader of the Caliphate, he wrote a letter and the Caliphate wouldn't reply to it because they wrote the the caliph's name wrong. So they're like, nope, send us another letter written properly. So that would have added months to the <laughs> to the discussions. So you can only imagine, uh, yeah. If... Do you think they fired the scribe that misspelled the name? I don't know, maybe, maybe. But yeah, so there's all this stuff. Basically, the takeaway from it all is that the first ruse were Swedes, effectively. And uh, this week, we've heard a lot about that and how Swedes headed east and managed to settle in the area and take over administration of some other towns. And areas like Ladoga flourished and became part of the Nodal trade network hoovering up all these Arabian dirhams to help facilitate their entrance into the European market. This trade activity and prowess, along with military reputation, for sure, there was a lot of violence. It brought them into contact with the two big powers in the east, the Byzantine and the Abbasid Caliphate. It is perhaps a bit ironic that the first major literary evidence of this work comes from the empire of Louis the Pious, who is becoming one of the major figures in early Swedish history now. Yeah, he's really popping up, but I think this might be it for Louis. Next week, we'll look at about how these Rus started setting up their own sort of, not really states, but at least political entities in the East and how they began starting to take over and control huge swathes of land operating out of Novograd and Kiev and places like that. We'll even get to a point where they finally actually come to blows with the Byzantines just a few decades later as they continue to shift away from a kind of Swedish expats or Swedes abroad to becoming their own people in their own right. Yeah, and I'm definitely looking forward to hearing more about this and reading more about it, because I think this connection, these Swedes de then developing their own independent identity and political nature elsewhere, I, I think that's, uh, that's very interesting. So uh, more on that next time. Exactly. 
Before we finish, we're going to have to read out a lovely review mm-hmm. that we've just had on iTunes. Uh, it's from Cara's Mannequin, who I suspect is the wonderful Cara from Twitter, who yeah. spends a lot of her time recommending great history podcasts yeah. to everyone who will listen, which is a lot of people. She's a great account to follow for good podcast recommendations. And uh, occasionally she recommends us, yeah. which we're very grateful for. And she wrote in her five-star review on iTunes, she says, I absolutely have loved discovering and listening to this podcast. The hosts are fun and their enthusiasm and incitement is contagious. Each episode begins with a unique Swedish phrase or explanation which further adds to the fun before diving into the history. I'm so excited to listen and follow along with this podcast. Thank you so much, Cara. Uh, please keep the reviews coming. Basically how a lot of these sites where you listen to podcast how they work is that the more reviews you have and in particular the more good reviews you have the more notice your podcast gets so please do take a couple of minutes or even half a minute to write a little review it uh, helps more people find out about us yeah i think on the itunes app on the phone i don't have an iphone but you can just scroll down and just do it whilst you're listening to an episode so i think it's quite easy but anyway thank you for listening to this lovely episode about the eastern swedish marauding and trading vikings and we'll be back next time to continue their stories and until then you can follow us on twitter at flatpack sweden and we're also on facebook yep under the same thing just search for a flatpack history of sweden and thank you everybody for listening yeah. see you next time bye hey door It can be seen that Ladoga was perhaps the most important trading centre in Eastern Europe in the ninth century. In the ninth century. In the ninth century. <laughs> yeah.